Welcome to Unlap. Two races remain in the F1 season. Lots to get into after an exciting Sao Paulo Grand Prix. Plus two special guests join the show and you'll never guess who they are. So you'll want to stick around for that. All right, it's time to get into it. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, like this video, leave us a comment and don't forget to subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. And if you're listening, hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It means a great deal to me. It means a great deal to Lawrence Edmondson, who joins me now. Laz, good to see you. Uh, there's a lot to break down from what went down in Brazil. And I think we'll start with Mercedes because they're capturing a lot of the headlines for what was uh, a frustrating weekend overall, lackluster. Where on earth did the pace go after what was a really strong performance a year ago at this circuit? Well, that's what Mercedes were asking themselves on Sunday night. And I think part of the reason why it was was so shocking was because they went into this race talking about, here's one of our last chances to to have a go at victory. Um, I was one of the people that believed that. I put Lewis Hamilton as my uh, top tip to win the race. It was a bit of a punt because we all know, know that Verstappen has the fastest car usually at any weekend. But I thought this could be the opportunity, you know, a track that suited them last year. They'd just got the car sorted after an upgrade in the U, you know, the US Grand Prix. Things went well in Mexico, got the second place sealed. The one at the US Grand Prix, of course, uh, was disqualified. And then I just thought, you know, everything is trending towards a potential victory in Brazil. And the pace just wasn't there. And there's a number of reasons, I think. Um, uh, they're still trying to figure it out themselves. They seem to say that they don't know exactly where the pace went. But um, again, it was a sprint weekend. So you get that one practice session on a Friday to set up the car and get everything right. And they think, whereas in the US, they ran the car too low and uh, they ended up falling foul of the uh, plank rules where you have to have a certain amount of wear on, on the plank and they exceeded that. Um and uh, and yeah, in this one, perhaps they went a little bit too conservative. So they ran the car a little bit too high. Uh, and then they were struggling with um, grip. They had this big, huge like rear wing. So much more downforce than they'd usually put on there. And it just wasn't delivering the performance that they wanted. So it seemed like the floor and the wing wasn't working together. And then they tried to fix that in the race by um, changing the front wing level to kind of balance everything out and, uh, and try and protect the tires. And then that just led to this car that was just awful understeering through corners so as the driver turned in the car more or less just went straight rather than turning into the corner and so they had this handling issue throughout the race and that's fundamentally where they lost their time now clearly it was a track that didn't suit them and they'll want to figure out why that was but um there are a few setup issues which which seem to be the the problem and had it been a normal weekend with three practice sessions maybe they would have figured those out in fp2 and three but they just didn't get the chance so that appears to be what went wrong. So Lewis finishes P8 and George unfortunately retired after around lap 57. Are you surprised that Mercedes, a team and an organization uh, to their pedigree, I guess is a fair way to put it, has struggled so much with their concept, their setup and ultimately putting together a car that is uh, what they said, what a miserable thing to drive. The car doesn't deserve to win. I mean, the frustration that boiled over from Toto Wolff and Lewis Hamilton seemed warranted, quite frankly. Yeah. So we've seen that a number of points uh, this year where the car's really been bad. And the first one was in Bahrain at the very first race uh, yeah. where Toto Wolff basically wrote off the season and the concept. And let's be honest, he was right. That car hasn't won a race. You've got to remember Mercedes have won a, at least one race every year since 2012 so 
assuming they don't win either of the next two races and the odds are probably against them, uh, given the circuits we're going to, uh, they face, you know, this end of, of a run. And we obviously saw things slip last year in 2022. They got uh, the fundamental concept of the car wrong under these new regulations and they've struggled ever since. But, you know, with a team like Mercedes, the expectation having won eight constructors championships prior to that is that you then get it right. You figure out what's gone wrong, you get it right. And they didn't. And they made similar mistakes or they, they stuck to their guns on certain things. And they basically just uh, underestimated as well what Red Bull were going to do over the winter and the, the step that Red Bull were able to find with their concept. So this is basically the car as it looks now. I mean, there's a number of things which have come to it, recent races which will be taken forward, but a lot of it will just be thrown in the bin and they're starting again with a new concept. Like, like I said, they've started to explore a few ideas within that and that's where some of the positive performances have come from so everything after monaco was a little bit better this year because they brought a big upgrade there and then there was another upgrade again like i said in 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 the us which worked at the us and mexico but didn't work in brazil so there's been little signs of, of it getting better but there's just some fundamental uh things baked into this car uh basically the the chassis design the layout of it with the suspension things like that which they cannot change they haven't been able to change this year and they've desperately been wanting to so the real test of it all comes next year but i don't know i mean uh, i you know I, I think i'm being fairly kind to them there's a few journalists i've heard who have been <laughs> pretty brutal about um what they've done this year and and the lack of results and also a few people questioning toto wolf and whether he's committed to uh to mercedes and wants to remain there long term and, and and set everything right everything i've heard is that he does but you know the fact that those questions are being asked that they haven't scored results to the point that those questions can be asked um you know it, it's really not where that team should be when you look ahead to the future and, and you mentioned a few positives to be able to draw on and, and move forward with is there any hope that Mercedes can compete and contend with Red Bull in 2024 or 2025? Well, I'm going to sound a bit like a broken record because I think I said this at the end of last year as well, but we should get a fairly clear picture within the first few races of next year. Last year, they said exactly the same thing. We've understood what we've done wrong. Uh, we're going to make the fundamental changes we need to make to our concept to then uh, set it off. Now, I think the changes that they're going to make into next year are going to be even bigger. But with that comes a huge risk. Uh, I remember James Allison talking, I think it was in Baku this year. Uh, James Allison is the technical director at Mercedes now, and he was the chief technical officer back then, but we won't go into changing roles and all that kind of stuff. And he said, when you're going with a concept of a car, you're it's like you're climbing a mountain. Um, but then that's all well and good, and you get to the peak, and you see where where you ultimately have got to and, 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 and what, what the potential is. But if you decide halfway through, actually, we've got the wrong concept and you look over uh you know over the horizon you see a taller mountain and you want to start climbing that well that's all well and good your your eventual point may be higher up but you've got to go all the way down and start climbing all the way back up again so this is the risk that mercedes has by completely changing what they're going to do with the car going forward is that they're going to come down off the concept they had and they're going to have to start more or less you know from the bottom with another one now, I think they've, as I said, started to explore some ideas. Uh, of course, the work on next year's car would have been going on for a very long time. And there are some sounds, you know, some noises of optimism coming from Mercedes. But the problem is, is that Rebel aren't, aren't standing still. So if we use the mountain analogy again, if Rebel are halfway up their mountain, well, they're going to keep climbing over the winter and Mercedes has got to climb twice as fast to catch up. 
I'd like to think that um, you could gain confidence from Aston Martin and the turnaround that we saw from the end of last season to what we saw at the beginning of this season. I mean, it was it was remarkable and it was drastic. Now, they didn't obviously remain consistent with it throughout the entirety of this season. Or you could point to McLaren, who struggled, obviously, from the start, and it looked like they were going to really have difficulty finding wins, finding pace this season, and then they had an unbelievable turnaround. So it, it is possible, but... Comparing those two teams to the likes of Mercedes, I think, just shows exactly where this team is and why maybe some journalists um, are not being too kind to them at the moment, because there are such high expectations, especially when you have two phenomenal drivers in Lewis Hamilton and George Russell. Speaking of two other drivers uh, that dominated the headlines, they were involved in rumors all week leading into the Brazil Grand Prix, uh, had an Epic battle to the end. Uh, so much respect for what we saw from Fernando Alonso and Sergio Perez. I'm not sure if Fernando Alonso handed out consequences that he said were coming for the said rumors or not. I don't know if you heard of anything that, that happened in the paddock last. Uh, but what did you make of the finish between those two drivers? Yeah, I think that was kind of Fernando just showing what he can do. And, and Aston Martin needed that result. Of course, so a lot of those rumours about Alonso's future, would he go to Red Bull and all that kind of stuff, stemmed from the fact that Aston appear to have lost their way uh, towards the second half of this season. But um, there you go. That's interesting as well, because they brought a lot of upgrades uh, to the car, especially at the US, in the US Grand Prix as well. And they didn't really get the best of them over the US and the Mexico weekends. And so they went to Brazil and they actually rolled back some of those upgrades and kind of did a mix and match of the bits they think that were working and uh, the bits they knew that worked from early in the season. And all of a sudden, Alonso looked competitive again. I think they were a little bit lucky with the way qualifying worked out and stuff like that. You know, they qualified relatively high compared to the pace of the car. But that's why you pay Alonso. Well, I don't know how much he gets paid, but that's why Lawrence <laughs> pays Alonso what he gets paid. Because his ability to grind out a result and just be the difference was so visible in Brazil uh, when he had Sergio Perez right behind him for about 20 laps. Uh, Perez in undoubtedly a faster car. They're pretty evenly matched tyres. But um, Alonso's ability to just, yeah, keep him behind, mix up racing lines, change the way he was using uh, the car's hybrid system, so the electrical boost of power that he can choose when he uses around the lap. Things like that were just sensational. And mm -hmm. then what we so rarely see in modern Formula 1, a driver lose a position and then engineer a way to gain back that position. I mean, that's exactly what you want from Formula 1 racing, is the ability for a car to be overtaken, but then still battle and try and get the position back. So that's rare in, in Formula 1, unfortunately. But um, yeah, for Alonso to do that in Brazil was was absolutely fantastic. I mean, I hope it had you on the edge of your seat as well. I, I don't know. It, it did. It, was, it almost felt as if he was willing the car to P3. Like... You, yeah. you know what I mean? It's one thing to drive the car. It's another thing to will a result like that to happen. I, I just thought it was phenomenal. And to your point, I think that's what makes the sport so great. It, it's fights, battles within the race like that, that we got to see in it. It lasted all the way to the finish. So I thought it was extremely exciting. Lance Stroll also got a, a huge result. I know that he's been uh, down and out and, and taken some flack and some heat. Uh, for his past performances. But overall, I mean, Aston Martin has to be thrilled with their performance in Brazil. Yeah, they are. And I think it's exactly what they needed because imagine if they'd gone into the winter um, mm. without ever kind of getting back up to that level that they had with the podiums. I think 
Alonso's last podium prior to that was the Dutch Grand Prix. It was wet, you know, it was again another amazing Alonso drive. But as you point out, Stroll for, you know, it feels like half the season, maybe more, two thirds of the season has been underperforming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think for the two of them to get a pretty solid result was was very important. And, you know, it's a strange time at that team because um, as, as big a step as they made at the start of the year, um, it was always going to be tough to, to maintain that. And there were a lot of questions asked, you know, had they basically just borrowed a concept from Red Bull when Dan Fallows went from Red Bull to Aston Martin to become technical director last year and just installed it into, you know, uh, their CFD and built this car and then not really known how to, you know, progress with it had they lost their way with it you know was it just the fact that they had the the very basics but I think you know this is all part of the process for any team is that you've got to probably make a few mistakes along the way to figure out what works and what doesn't and um, you know we're very critical of Mercedes in Brazil we've been you know critical of Aston Martin at recent races losing their way but let's not forget you know even Red Bull you know the great Red Bull team with that fantastic car had an awful race in Singapore where the performance just disappeared so these things can happen. So I think the important thing, of course, is always to bounce back. And that's what Aston have done going into the winter. So if, um, yeah, if, if they can take that, get a little bit more understanding of where they're going with the car uh, over the winter and, and the bits that work and the bits they have to keep from uh, from earlier in the year, uh, I think that'd be very positive for them. You know who Sarah McLaughlin is? The uh, I think she's a Canadian singer. I, I have to admit, I don't. You might be asking okay, the that's wrong fair enough. That's fair enough. <laughs> and I, think, I think Zach would know who she is because we have, um, I think it's a humane society. We always have these horrific images of battered animals come up on commercials, right? You know, dogs and cats that need homes and they've, um, you know, they've just been done away with. It's, it's really sad. But Sarah McLaughlin has a song. And it's in the eyes of the angel. I'm doing a bad job here, but it's just like such a sad, horrible song. And so we as Americans always associate that song with just bad, bad luck, right? Or something horrific. All I could think of watching Charles Leclerc walk off is <laughs> that song played in the background. Fortunately, we probably don't have the rights to play the song in the background of this conversation as it pertains to Charles Leclerc. Your, your singing is enough. Do you want to just <laughs> sing and, and I'll talk about Leclerc's well, no. it wasn't race, but it's, no, uh, because I think I think people will unsubscribe uh, very very quickly if that continues. Um, all joking aside, uh, song aside. Charles Leclerc starts P2, doesn't even make it past the formation lap. Um, Huge missed opportunity for Ferrari, certainly, as we mentioned, because Mercedes didn't have the pace. Um, What did you make of Charles Leclerc's afternoon? What did it end up being, a hydraulic issue of some sort? Uh, They thought it was a hydraulic issue because uh, it looked like the steering went heavy, which is linked to the hydraulics, the power steering system. And then it looked like the uh, gearbox seized in some kind of way because that's what spun them out. But they they later found out it, it was it was something different. They were a bit cagey on exactly what it was, but I think something that was controlling the hydraulic system uh, failed rather than the hydraulic system itself. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter either way, does it? If if a car ends up in the barrier on its way to the grid, um, when I first saw it, I thought, oh no, Charles, what have you done? Like you know, because it's not been. It's been a brilliant run of qualifying for him recently, but races have not been great. Um, and so I thought, oh, God, you know, what, what, what have you done? And uh, yeah, and, and then it turned out that it wasn't him, it was the car. But it doesn't make it, it pretty makes it even harder for him. And as he said, he is pretty much the unluckiest person 
Uh, I think he used some some slightly more colourful language along the way as well. But yeah, to be that unlucky to be second on the grid, you know, who's been polled the last two races before that. Okay, he got a podium in Mexico, but yeah, still to to then have that happen, I don't know. I I just don't know what what you can what you can say to someone like that. I suppose it, the only benefit is that at least it isn't during a season when he's competing for the championship. Uh, but you kind of get the feeling that if he was, then these kind of things are the kind of things that would would rip it away from him at the last few races. I don't want to carry on this list but you can find his results on the entire season and, and dnf's penalties um issues with the car a variety of different issues at different points i mean there's only a handful of clean races with no issues where he certainly finishes in the points because we know he's capable of that uh, you mentioned unlucky I, I in my time covering the sport which is more recent certainly than yours have you ever seen a driver plagued quite like Charles Leclerc is? I honestly don't know if I have. Um, you know, I mean, you, you have seasons where where things seem to go against drivers. I guess a really obvious example was 2016, where um, Lewis Hamilton was up against Nico Rosberg at Mercedes. They had by far the best car, so it was down to those two who was going to win the championship. And Lewis's first four races, I think, you know, he was struggling to even you know, put points on the board. He was having grid penalties early on because of reliability issues. And so Rosberg built up this, this big lead early on. And then it looked like Lewis was going to come back and he was leading the Malaysian Grand Prix and his Mercedes engine spat a load of fire out the back and uh, failed in him. So I don't know, off the top of my head, that was a very unlucky season for one driver that led to uh, Nico Rosberg winning it. But with Leclerc, it just seems constant, doesn't it? It just seems to stretch over seasons as well. You know, there's a Leclerc curse we talk about at Monaco. Um, and it it just feels like everything is, is, is kind of working a little bit against him. And I think what makes it all the more frustrating is the flashes of brilliance he shows. So those pole positions that he gets and you're like, wow, you know, how... A car which we know is not easy to drive this year's Ferrari. You know, it's got a lot of rear instability, yet he seems to live with it somehow. Uh, you know, he sets up the car in a way that he doesn't like. That's one thing he's had to do throughout the season to deal with the fundamental issues with the handling of the car, and yet still goes and gets pole positions. And then for yeah, for that to happen, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know what to what to say anymore. And and what's more, he is he is also a a really lovely person like he's, he's actually a really nice guy you can't help but feel sorry for him when things go go wrong to him i mean i, I wouldn't wish you know kind of failures on the formation lap on on any of the drivers on the grid but yeah leclerc especially you know you just feel like you want to put your arm around him and tell him it's going to be okay but i don't think i can <laughs> he's easy to root for i think he's he's very yeah. easy to root for so you feel for him um with the waves of, of bad luck that he's had this season and to your point Middle of last season is when the bad luck kind of seemed to to start happening for him. So it's it spanned two seasons now. So can't just imagine where he is mentally. His teammate, though, Carlos, Carlos Sainz, uh, is in a tight battle for P4 in, in the driver's standings. So, you know, he needs a strong finish. Ferrari's 20 points behind Mercedes for P2 in the constructors. Um, you know, we obviously mentioned the lack of pace for Mercedes, Two races remain. Do you feel like Ferrari has it in them to leapfrog Mercedes at the tail end here? You're starting to smile. Well, I know. Just on the basis of Brazil, it's who's going to throw it away, not really who's going <laughs> to win it, right? It's like who's going to 
either get the setup so wrong in a race that they can't compete like Mercedes did, um, or who's going to have uh, reliability issues that that means the car doesn't even make it to the grid. So it could come down to that. Genuinely, I mean, these you know, it's not it's not unusual for positions in championships to be decided by mistakes rather than uh, rather than on on the merit of of results. So yeah, it's um it, it's going to be close. I I don't know if I could if I can pick it anymore. Like the the Ferrari um still looks like uh the faster car in qualifying that's been pretty much the case throughout the year and then the other thing we could say conversely to that is that the mercedes consistently has been the faster of those two cars in the race um but of course that went away in brazil so it's it's, it's an interesting one of course going into vegas uh, i know we're going to talk a lot more about that probably in the next podcast we do but we've got um a track that no one knows uh unusually cold temperatures for form one race which is going to play havoc with getting the tires working, and um, yeah, the potential for 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 a lot to to happen in that race. I think you know a lot, a lot of potential chaos as well. So um, that will be that will be key, and especially for Ferrari. I think it's at this stage when sometimes it's nice to be the the team that's chasing down another team, but at this stage, you know, you want to be in Mercedes position and have that points buffer so that any mistake perhaps does get covered up by the points buffer, and then you go on and, and score points. At, the final round in Abu Dhabi and, and make sure it happens. So I'd still put my money on Mercedes. Yeah. So I, I do believe Brazil was a bit of a one-off, but um, yeah, it really could be thrown away by either side. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day, but sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. It's all about how you look at the question, how you frame the question. And Laz did a nice job uh, changing it. Okay, best <laughs> of the rest uh, from the weekend. There was uh, some highlights for other drivers. Lando again finishes P2. He's been in great form in the back half of the season. Uh, Logan Sargent finished P11, so progress there. Anything from the weekend that you you really enjoyed? Um. What did I enjoy? Yeah, I think Lando Norris's performance. Uh, it's quite easy to let that go under the radar because of what we saw between Alonso and, and Perez mm-hmm. at the end of the race. But he, at one stage, was challenging Max Verstappen for the win. And I think what that showed you was, uh, one, the potential performance of, of the McLaren, but also its its failings, which is that um, while it can be very quick over one lap and at the start of a stint, to maintain that performance across a whole stint. So basically to make the tire life last so that you've got performance throughout uh, from one pit stop to the next um, is, is something that the McLaren doesn't quite have relative to the Red Bull. It has it relative to pretty much every other car in the field, which is very impressive. But yeah, that seems to be that little bit that's lacking uh, uh, for McLaren. But 
A good thing about McLaren uh, going forward, just while we're on the subject, is that, you know, aero-wise, they've made some huge steps. So those big upgrades we talked about around Austria and uh, have kind of trickled through the season, all of that has been based on the aerodynamic package and it's created some incredible results. The one thing that they haven't really changed is the mechanical package, so suspension, stuff like that. Again, similar issue to Mercedes. It's very difficult to change that mid-season without um, either spending a lot of money or, um, or you know, re- really redesigning a whole concept. So they can go into the winter knowing what their failings are there and hopefully finding uh, some solutions. So I think that was that that was massively massively positive. Um, the other driver I want to give a shout out to is Yuki Tsunoda because I think he was he was pretty amazing. I mean, Daniel Ricciardo deserve a lot of credit for what he did in Mexico and also for his comeback in general. I think he's looking great. And there was a chance that Yuki, you know, maybe got slightly overshadowed, but he came back fighting in Brazil and was absolutely on it, you know, getting points in both the sprint race and the, and the proper races. Uh, it's very good. How about you? Anything stand out to you from, uh, from that weekend? I'm surprised you didn't take uh, Max Verstappen's singing ability. Um, <laughs> I'd say it rivals mine at this point. No, I mean, that was, there's a nice story. Did you hear the story about that? No. So it's a Tom Jones song. You'd have to remind me of the exact one it was. Um, but I believe it was a Tom Jones song that uh, when they left karting races, when Max was a kid, Jos Verstappen, his dad, who, of course, ex one one driver, used to put that on as they were driving back to okay. the Netherlands, especially if they'd had a victory. And so it's become a bit of a thing within Red Bull. It sometimes apparently gets played uh during kind of celebration moments or whatever apparently there's been some karaoke renditions already so that's why it, that's why it came about so um i only heard about that like way afterwards but um kind of interesting yeah i love that um so they weren't playing machine gun kelly afterwards you don't think <laughs> there, there might have been a bit of that there might have been a bit of that i, I don't know it depends uh depends how how martin brundle feels about that i guess you know that was another another legendary grid interview that yeah. that's my best of the rest i mean <laughs> he is primed every now and then for some uh I don't want to say amazing TV moments but cringeworthy I think is a fair uh way to describe what went down between Martin Brundle during his grid walk uh he ran into Machine Gun Kelly they were doing an interview if you haven't seen it it was all over Twitter uh but Machine Gun Kelly basically says can you do the air piano you just play the air piano while I play the air guitar Martin won't do it like it becomes more awkward and more of a thing by saying no, right? Like if you just did it, you could have been done with it and you could have moved on. But the fact that Martin Brundle dug in his heels, I thought was pretty hilarious. Yeah, it's it's a weird kind of dynamic, isn't it? Whenever he talks to anyone and his go-to question is, so how's your career going at the moment? And Machine Gun Kelly was just like, uh, yeah, my career. Uh, yeah, well, let's talk about this. Why don't you do the air guitar? And like, it was almost like two completely different conversations <laughs> were happening at the same time. And um, and there was just this very, as you say, awkward disconnect between the two. Um, but I guess, I don't know, I guess that's part of the appeal, isn't it, of the Martin Brundle grid walk? It, it, it's all, he's always done it his own way. And I think he really doesn't care who anyone is or what they say to him or whatever. He's he's just going to do it his way. So I have I have respect for that 100%. Um but it is it is funny and it kind of shows how much 
F1's changed since when he first started doing those grid walks, which would have been like late 90s. Uh, we used to get it on ITV here, which is one of the uh, TV yeah. stations here. And um, yeah, that's when it started out and it became this, you know, th- this big thing. But now increasingly the celebrities that he comes across, I think he has no idea who they are. To be honest, quite a few of them, I have to admit, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I'm probably more Martin's generation than some of the uh, guests on the on the grid nowadays. But um yeah, even so, uh, it's it's starting to become quite quite a thing that he just goes up to people who he clearly knows nothing about and tries to have a conversation. Anyway. And I love it. I love the grid walk. I think it's so entertaining. I think he does a great job. And to your point, like it, it sometimes is hard to recognize celebrities when they're not in their rightful place, right? Like, and I mean that by I have trouble sometimes if I see a basketball player out in public in street clothes as compared to seeing them in their uniform or something like that, if you can't quite place them. So I have to imagine it's very difficult to do on the fly. Uh, but that, again, was another TV moment of gold uh, brought to you by Martin Brundle. Speaking of celebrities, I'm so excited for this. Nate Saunders and Lawrence Edmondson got to sit down uh, with 2009 world champion Jensen Button and actor Keanu Reeves for an exclusive interview about their upcoming documentary, Braun, the impossible F1 story. It comes out on November 15th on Disney Plus and Hulu. And we are now going to give you a listen. Check it out. Nate Saunders here from ESPN Unlapped. I'm with Lawrence Edmondson. And I think today we've raised the bar for the guests that we've had on this show. Not only do we have 2009 world champion Jensen Button, we've also got Keanu Reeves joining us on the show Delighted to have you both with us today, guys. Thank you so much for taking some time to have a have a chat with us. Um, Thank you. Keanu, I'm going to start with you because, I mean, when I when I heard about this um, documentary for the first time, I wondered how on earth has Keanu Reeves ended up narrating and <laughs> basically driving an entire documentary about Formula One? I imagine there's a great story behind that. When did Formula One uh, get onto your radar and when did you first learn about the Braun GP story? Um, yeah, I, I liked Formula One as a kid and, you know, followed it on and off through the years. Um, loved the cars, loved the racing, loved the sound of it, love, yeah, love it. And, um, and I heard the story, I didn't, I didn't watch the 2009 season really. Um, I can't remember. I might've seen a race or two, but but a friend of mine told me the story and he, you know, he basically started with, Hey, do you remember that team that was bought for a pound that won the championship, you know, independent team that won. And I was like, what, huh? And that was really like the pitch line. And then I was in, I've made documentaries in the past. I love storytelling. And so, uh, the guy who I partnered with Simon Hammerson, uh, is a producer and director I'd worked with and, uh, and we have spoken about it. And so he and I went and tried to make this documentary. And here we are because of Jensen Button and Ross Braun and Nick Fry and Rubens Barrichello. You know, they, they said yes. And so then we could move forward, you know. And I guess, Jensen, the obvious question for you off the back of that is how did you feel when you found out that Keanu Reeves was going to make a documentary about your championship season? Uh very privileged <laughs> no man i bet you were just for like that sounds weird what huh <laughs> who <laughs> who what where why uh, for me it was it's funny because a lot of time's gone by since 2009 and everyone's been busy time moves so fast these days so for me to stop and have a moment 
to really reflect on that year was was amazing and then we met in LA for lunch uh with the full crew that were going to be involved with uh with the documentary talked it through and I I could see the the interest from these guys and and how much time and effort they'd already put into it and understanding what that season really meant to us and to Formula One so I was fully on board uh and for me reliving that season it, you know every step of the way through the interview process to watching the documentary I mean it feels like it was yesterday and it brings back so much emotion and I I love that the new fans of this sport are going to get to see a true gritty story of of this small team that took it to the big giants of Formula One and they won and I, I also love that the way that it's been shot the interviews that Keanu does and how open everyone's been with Keanu and how much passion there still is for that season whether it's it was a good year or a bad year there's a lot of emotion and, and pent up probably aggression in some <laughs> <laughs> and Keanu I just wanted to um, I mean ask both of you about that really because what was really striking about the documentary was you spoke to everyone involved in that story I mean it wasn't just a case of talking to you know Jensen and 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 the top guys you talked to a lot of people across the team what was that like just just hearing those those human stories of the team like Jensen said kind of reliving it again after all this time and Jensen, just for you, that process of getting yourself back into that season, you mentioned that it was it was pretty amazing to do. But was there anything um, for you, Jensen, that kind of coming back to this that you realized, like, actually, I hadn't thought about this for a while that kind of surprised you kind of getting back to that point again? No, kind of kind of strange. It's um, when you watch the documentary and for everyone that watches it that was outside of Braun, they'll just be like, wow, what a story you couldn't. You couldn't script this. You wouldn't believe it if it, was, if it was a fictional movie. When you're in it, though, it's it's tough. When you're in that in that season, you have the highs, but the lows are the ones that really get you. And uh, it was such a a tough season for all of us. You know, the highs were unbelievably high, but the lows were so low. It's some some of the lowest moments I've had in the sport came in 2009, but then to win. The championship in Brazil, the emotions and to take that championship in Brazil. Yeah, I mean, I still get so excited about it. It's 14 <laughs> years ago. And I've always said that race wins are amazing. It's that living in the moment. But a world championship, that never gets old. That's with you forever. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was like when you speak about, you know, everyone we had a chance to speak with, it, you know, really... But was, we were at Brackley, which is, you know, which, so the old Braun, Honda, Braun, Mercedes-Benz at Brackley. When we were there, we were filming, um, we had, and we were at Brackley and, and then people, a couple of people came up to us and said, oh, I was here when I did. And this one gentleman, I was like, well, what do you have? And he's like, I have a video. What do you mean you have a phone? He's just like, I filmed the car the first time it ever left the tent at the shakedown at, um, at, uh, where'd you guys do at Silverstone? It was that, yeah. yeah. You guys were the in, inside there and the short track and like, and I was like, what? And I was like, and then all of a sudden, all these other, I was like, who else has, and we started to meet other people who are at Mercedes Benz who 
were with Braun in 2009 at Brackley. Um, and so it was great. We started to meet all of, you know, other aerodynamicists. What did it take to cut the car in half? I mean, all of these people, we ended up taking a photo of it, which you see in the documentary. It's like over a hundred people at Mercedes who were at Brackley. And it was so cool to meet them. And, 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 and I was like, wait, we have to talk to these people. And it's in, in the documentary, just meeting everyone who worked at Brackley and hearing the stories of, of what happened and some of the challenges and the successes and um, yeah, really inspiring emotional stuff. Of course there were the Brackley interviews, but there were also some interviews with people who weren't part of the team. I'm thinking Bernie and Luca de Montezemolo as two that I want to talk about. <laughs> Christian Horner. And Christian yeah. Horner. Like so some of those were quite the emotions were still quite strong, as Jensen said, you know, even for the guys who were competing against, they're still strong. So how did you find those interviews? And also I have to ask, if you were uh, casting Bernie in a movie, who would play him? <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't know who would play. I don't know, Bernie Eccleston. I don't know. I have to There's think only one Bernie. Bernie. Yeah, right? <laughs> That's true. Right? That there is. What a character. He has the hair, right? The Bernie hair, Bernie eyeglass, the glasses, the kind of like, I, anyway. Um, uh what was the question so how, how were those interviews because at times they sent <laughs> they were a awesome bit, they were amazing. a little bit kind of tricky and like they didn't no, they were really gen everyone was christian and and bernie and and luca uh maestro i mean and even with ross brown and nick nick fry i have everyone rubens barrichello everyone was really generous in their in their kind of sharing of what was good or bad. And, you know, we, we, we you know, the director, Daryl Goodrich, Simon Hammerson, myself, we wanted to be really respectful to everyone and feel like it was safe to share however you felt. And I think people felt that, like they were, there was respect there and like, and curiosity. And, and, and I think there's also a bit of, you can't help yourself because you're, friggin care so much and you always care you ever you never don't care in race you know what i mean right jensen like talk about it like yeah they're still pissed off they lost that court case and someone would still say they're cheating they cheated <laughs> <laughs> but anyway or but then they would get gentlemanly right there's the like knives out but then we'll be civil and we'll talk to each other for the most part well, I think that's kind of it's interesting, isn't it? Because that's one of the things with the with the Drive to Survive series that a lot of fans really got into was the human element, but also also that kind of cutthroat politics of Formula One and how people could go from very very tense situations to then competing against each other on the racetrack. And you kind of picked the perfect season to do for that because you had the fairy tale story and then you had the photo situation, and everything like that. It's amazing to actually see it all put together in the way it is because an unbelievable season just on and off the track there's so much going on and between jensen and rubens right you're like a team until someone starts winning and right jensen you talk about like who do you have to who do you have to beat first your teammate <laughs> and there's, and there's no other sport like that right it's it's no, so isn't. unique in that sense yeah but i the thing for me that is exciting you know the series you talked about it's entertainment right it's to get the fans interested this story 
it is the story. Do you know what I mean? It is what it is. Um, it was beautifully told, I have to say. And I love all of the interviews from you know, the big names in the sport. But as Keanu said, the, the, the people within the team, the engineers, the mechanics, the fuel guy. I mean, I, that is one of Gary. the best stories ever, isn't it? Well, he yeah, was a even the race engineers, right? Like Andy and Jocko, like yeah. oh, Jock, like oh. yeah. There's so Outside much to the garage. Yeah, I think that's pretty. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Going from plumber back to <laughs> fuel rig operator for a Formula One team doesn't get much better than that. Um, guys, thank you so much for um, spending some time to talk to us today. Keanu Reeves, Jensen Button, absolute privilege to talk to you, and uh, I'm sure everyone's going to love the documentary. We've been binging through it today. And just messaging each other basically about how good it is. So thanks so much. Um, thanks, yeah, and uh, look forward to watching it again for a second time. <laughs> Cheers, man. Thank you. Cheers, guys. See you soon. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sports book of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. 10 seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Your relationships. Your skills. Your customer base. How about businesses on Shopify? <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash network, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash network now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash network. Bravo, by the way. Well done. I found that fascinating. What was it like for you to get to talk to Keanu Reeves? Yeah, it's it a little bit nerve wracking, actually. Like you yeah. get to a point, it's funny, isn't it? Because like you get so used to talking to people in Formula One and doing interviews and stuff. And obviously you're always like preparing and, and trying to be on the game. But with Keanu Reeves, I didn't know didn't know what to expect. And uh, we knew that he'd done quite a big press junket, as they called it, uh, over the course of the day. And we were right at the end. We were the last interview. So I was getting into it thinking, oh, I wonder if he's just going to be a little bit tired of, you know, talking through all this stuff. Um you know, obviously he he loves the subject matter because he, he did the documentary around it and it is fantastic as well. I've been lucky enough to watch a preview of it. Um, but uh, yeah, I was worried that maybe he'd just be, yeah, a little bit dismissive of, you know, who are these guys, Nate Saunders and, and Lawrence Edmondson, you know, yeah. like, let's just get through this and get out the door. But he wasn't. He was fantastic. He was really engaged and, and uh, yeah, seemed to absolutely love it. So um, it was cool, and and to talk to him and him and Jensen. Obviously, Jensen is someone who I've interviewed a couple of times, or, or more probably uh, over the years, and and got to know a tiny bit. Uh, so yeah, it was kind of interesting seeing uh, those two together because, as yeah. I think you know, you probably heard from the the interview, like they, they seem to have quite a good rapport, and um, that also comes across in the in the documentary itself uh, when people get a chance to watch it. Um, you know, Jensen features heavily in it, as you might expect. It's about the year he won the championship. But um, yeah, he's uh, he's he's clearly got quite a good 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 relationship going there. So, it'd be interesting to see 
what Keanu Reeves does next in the F1 sphere, if anything at all. But I feel like, yeah, he might have um, kind of got a taste for it and want to be a bit of a part of it now. Did you learn anything about the documentary or how it kind of came together that you weren't expecting? Yeah, I, I think what was interesting, like Keanu, uh, I tried to ask him about um, about Bernie Eccleston and interviewing him. Obviously, Bernie's uh-huh. such a character. So it was interesting to to hear what he had to say about him, of course. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, watching that interview, uh, there's an obvious comparison. Sorry, uh, watching the series, there's an o- obvious comparison with Drive to Survive, which is linked so much to F1's success. And I read uh, somebody else's review of the Braun series and how it's Drive to Survive for adults. Uh, it was in, I should mention, it was in Motorsport magazine. It was a good review of it. And um, I think that's absolutely right. It, you know, it really is just that extra level of, rather than just, you know, the frivolity and the kind of personalities and just, you know, the the very basic kind of top tier kind of lacquer stuff, you know, it really gets deep. It goes, it goes way deeper than that into people's stories, into uh, people who started a season thinking that they were going to get made redundant lose their jobs and uh and really digs digs deep into that so um it's a it's a story which i'm i've been fascinated about partly because um it was just before i started working for espn so it was one of the last seasons i watched before i became uh, a journalist for espn and then also um i after 10 years in, in in 2019 10 years after the championship i talked to a bunch of the same people who were in the documentary and uh interviewed them for this huge uh long piece that um people can go and track down if they want but i, I warn you now it's, it's a long deep read but it's fascinating to hear to hear what was really going on at that team so um yeah watching the the documentary was nice because there's a lot of the stories i'd heard before but kind of getting a little bit more of the uh of, of the visual around it is, is fantastic well done on the interview i'm so cool that you guys got to do that i love listening and getting to watch it and if you want to see it back watch the actual video you can find it on YouTube right now um, on our ESPN F1 channel. Two bits of news before we say goodbye. Uh, one's more serious than the other. The U.S. Grand Prix results, they stand. Uh, the stewards have rejected Haas's appeal. Not all that surprising. No, uh, that's kind of what we expected. And it, it was an interesting uh, summation by the stewards uh, because they rejected Haas's appeal, which happens so often. You have to come up with something that is... Uh, new uh, and relevant, and I'm trying to remember the other criteria. But anyway, th- there's basically th- these things that they hit, and it's so rare that you hit the new bit. So it has to be something that was not available to the stewards at the time. Now, Hass really just submitted on board camera footage, which was all available to the stewards at the time, uh, and also they um, they did a right to review, which is usually a right to review a decision. Now the track limits uh, alleged violations, there was no decision on them because they were let slide. You know, that that was the whole point of it. It was about drivers skipping the inside of turn six. And so there were four drivers, Alex Albon, Logan Sargent, uh, Lance Stroll and Sergio Perez, who who Haas believed had, had should have been penalised but weren't. Um, and uh, and so they did a, a rights review when really what they should have done is a protest. So it almost seems like Haas got the wrong the wrong bit of paperwork and filed it to the FIA to start with. But a very good point that came out of it, right last paragraph of, of the stewards' uh, summation of, of, of the whole thing, was that 
F1 and the FIA really need to find a solution for track limits. You can't have a turn like turn six. They basically admitted that, yeah, there probably was some violations there, but there's no way that we could have said certainly that there was at the time or now uh, that, that it happened. So what the FIA needs to come up with is either, you know, absolutely uh, completely uh, concrete, solid way of, of monitoring who goes off the track or circuits that just don't allow for track limits violations because they're like Suzuka and the minute your four wheels over the line, you're also in a gravel trap. You know, that's that's an, a very obvious solution. So um, I think that's something which uh, the rest of the Formula One community has been crying out for because we've had so much nonsense about track limits and oh, yeah. uh, we, we all wish it would stop and we have these, you know, changes to results in qualifying and uh you know in austria of course we had all the all the changes to to the actual results as well and uh, i don't think you know that it's really fitting of of the top series in motorsport to have uh those kind of changes after the flag over something like that so that has to be addressed and so uh hopefully they'll get around to that before the start of next year we hope so because i felt like our summer was dominated on this podcast with track limit conversation and uh, we would like to talk about other things like hard-hitting news such as this uh netflix has released the pairings for the first ever live sports event next week with vegas on the horizon um obviously drive to survive is a huge hit full swing which is the same kind of version but for the pga tour and golfers um hit netflix i believe this year was their first season uh, but there is a pairing. They're going to have a live golf event, um, maybe at the Win Win Golf Club in Vegas, but who cares where it's at? The pairings are this. Lando Norris and Ricky Fowler, Carlos Sainz and Justin Thomas, Pierre Gasly and Colin Morikawa, and Alex Albon and Max Homa. So if you're a betting man, Lawrence, who's your money on? Well, I mean, this is how little I know about professional golf is that I actually know who's the better golfer of the F1 drivers rather than who's the better golfer of the golfers. So um, that's who I'm picking. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, I would put my money on Lando Norris and Ricky Fowler. I wouldn't. If it was just Ricky Fowler, I would not have put my money on him. But I've heard Lando Norris is the best golfer. Is that true? No, Carlos Sainz is a significantly better golfer than Lando So Lando Norris. just golfs more? Lando golfs an awful lot and is addicted to it and has improved far more than science in the in the last two years or since he started playing. But um, his standard was was way lower to start with. So science is pretty much a lifelong golfer. So okay. So then, all right, I'm changing my money because we so, obviously haven't. Yeah, haven't that, played. that's okay. what I'm doing. Justin <laughs> Thomas is a a good pairing then. Oh, so they're the team to beat. I think so. I mean, Justin Thomas is a name I've heard of, at least. So I'm pretty sure. I mean, that's the thing. Between the professional golfers, you're going to have, what, maybe three, four shots, you'd hope, over a round. You know, if they, if they all bring their game properly, there shouldn't be much dividing them. But the F1 drivers, you could have, like, 14 <laughs> shots, maybe even 40 shots dividing some of those guys. Uh, Pierre Gasly, I don't think, has played that much. Uh, but he does have Rory McIlroy as one of the investors in Alpine now. So maybe he's got some tips. And I know he has been practicing a lot. Um, Alex Albon is is, is kind of handy. Um, uh, of course, his, his girlfriend is, is a professional golfer as well. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't really have any excuse. But I think of, of those four drivers, my understanding, at least, is that Carlos Sainz is kind of head and shoulders above. That's awesome. Cool event. I think it'll it'll be uh, entertaining, to say the least, that they'll have that on Netflix for people to be able to watch ahead of, obviously, the Las Vegas Grand Prix. 
Speaking of, we're going to be live leading into the inaugural Vegas Grand Prix on Twitter, ESPN, YouTube, and Facebook. So be sure to check that out. As always, thank you for watching. Laz, thanks for your analysis. We appreciate you.